0: Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron, and with me as always is Michael. Hi! Michael, today in this episode of Game Studies Study Buddies, which is a show where we read through these academic books and we talk about them and maybe uh, outline them a little bit for people so they can engage with them and maybe go read them on their own, or put them in conversation with other stuff, you know, it's a little sampler platter of a podcast of uh, all these books that we talk about. We finished the summer of classics and uh today we're reading Jamie Woodcock's Marks at the Arcade, Consoles, Controllers, and Clash Struggle. Uh it's a book. It came out in 2019. I think I might have just said that. But if I didn't, now you know. And uh you had not read this book before. No, I hadn't. Me neither. Um mm. you know this is Haymarket is a pretty uh pretty interesting press. You know, they are a leftist press, pretty explicitly. Uh, and they do this kind of double maneuver. On one hand, they do what I would call uh, more popular pressy books. You know, b- books that have a serious topic or an angle, but are, are aimed at people who are not experts. And mm-hmm. then they also do these uh, kind of academic books, too. Um, so I, I believe that Jason Reed's got some books that... Uh, um. Uh, Jake, Jason Reed being the Marxist scholar. Has some books out from Haymarket that are like the paperback versions, things like that. I'm just looking at the the website. Uh, apparently, China Miéville's new book called "A Specter Haunting on the Communist Manifesto" that's that's out or hmm. about to be out from uh, from them. So Haymarket does a lot of different stuff. Um, they apparently did Angela Davis's biography that people have been talking about recently. Um, but they're in this kind of double space, right? They mm-hmm. they do books that are geared for um kind of a general readership, and then they book, do books that are kind of more geared toward academia, but all of them have a general kind of leftist bent to
1: them. Mm-hmm. You know about uh Marx? Uh I've heard he's at the arcade. Yeah, he's there. <laughs> uh, great great app. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is actually a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen style, like alternate history. But, yeah, that's right. Marks and Ingalls are there.
0: Robert Louis Stevenson is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jules Verne is there. H.G. <laughs> Wells is there. I'm um, trying to think of other turn of the century ites. Virginia Woolf as as oh a, like a teenager. Uh-huh, <laughs> I'm, bl- uh-huh. I'm, I'm not great on my timeline there. It's like Game Master
1: Anthony, but for Victoriana. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly
0: what you're saying. <laughs> I know definitely
1: what you're talking about. Oh, the listeners do. The listeners and I are, are on the same page here. Great. Finally.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, where do we start? Where do we start here? This is not the kind of book we normally do. Maybe is, maybe is the first place to start.
1: Yeah. I would say what is distinctive to me about this book uh in terms of everything like i mean we've done 51 other books at this point um i think that this book is interesting because there are a lot of stories that we've heard in other previous books getting retold here uh like mm-hmm. because this book uh is divided kind of into two chunks uh the first half is about uh like the it's this interesting combination of, like, a uh, a history of video games just in and of themselves, right? Kind of like a history of, like, technological development and then uh, following on from that, uh, the development of the culture surrounding video games and kind of the, the commercial culture of them. Uh, and then this runs right into a more contemporary history about... Uh, organization movements within uh, uh, like the video games industry labor pool. Mm-hmm. And then the second half is kind of a series of brief uh genre level readings about uh like the the ideological implications of the structures of different types of video games. Mm-hmm. Uh so a lot of stuff that we read here is stuff that has been, like, the the topic of entire books previously. Or, like, you know, uh, a, a whole 60-page chapter in a previous book. Which is not to say that this is, like, bad, right, compared to that. Uh, but that this book is aiming at something different. As you already said, it's kind of a, a popular press kind of book. Meaning it is not... Uh, uh, intended for the kind of academically, uh, like you are, you are not necessarily reading this book in order to like get the, the chapter of your dissertation in game studies to lock into place, right? This is a book that is for someone who Mm -hmm. uh, weirdly enough, right? It's, it's a, it's kind of like the, our podcast of books, (laughs) Uh, it's for someone who might be interested in these topics, uh, and wants a kind of introduction or a primer for them, uh, and Woodcock, like, you know, cites his sources and everything, so if there's something in here that you read, uh, you'll know that, like, oh, if I want to know more about this, I should go read, like, Games of Empire or or whatever, uh, but in terms of, like, what is actually here, um, this is very much a kind of book that you would give to, uh, like, your friend who is more maybe interested in these issues in video games or kind of maybe uh, receptive to kind of leftist messaging within this hobby space. And you're like, hey, you should check this out and kind of, like, think over some of the things that it has to say. Uh, and yeah, it's good and clear on that level, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a great way of putting it. It's, it's a book that is designed uh, to give to someone who cares about games and thinks games are interesting, but doesn't really know why, for example, they might be political, right? Mm-hmm. Or like what the behind the scenes stuff going on in games is in, in a fundamental way, in a way that I did not realize when at the end of the last episode, I said, hey, let's do that Jamie Woodcock book we've been talking about. Um, uh, you do not need us to read this book. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're interested in this book, you could turn this off and just go read the book. Uh, yep. It is geared toward a wide audience with no expertise and no pre-existing knowledge. Um, you, you, I mean, basically, this episode is not going to be us explaining the book because the, the book is very good at self-explaining. Uh, Jamie so I, I think, a pretty great writer uh, in terms of just communicating the information. Um, but I would say the book is mostly information. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are very few interpretive moves here. Uh, you know, in some previous episodes, we've talked about, you know, method or discipline, right? So discipline being the kind of formation of academic ideas and texts that someone brings to bear on something. You know, the way that, uh, that you from uh, an English background, particularly an early modernist background, the tools you bring because of your discipline to a thing versus the tools that I bring are, are sometimes similar, but sometimes pretty different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the way a mathematician would do it is quite different from the way that either of us would do it. Um, uh, the uh, th- There's no real discipline to this, right? Uh, uh, which is fine. What really is there is a method. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is ostensibly Marxism. Um, although I would say that if you want to read this book and learn about Marx, you're probably not going to get very much. Uh, because it is ultimately a book that says... I, I I think in a general sense, Marx at the Arcade is a book that is geared towards saying if you are a Marxist and you've already made that decision kind of a priori, then you should care about video games because all the
1: things that Marxists care about are also happening in video games.
0: Does that does that sound right to you, Michael?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. There's there's a good bit of space just sort of uh, devoted to the question of if you are a Marxist and if you have these uh, political convictions, why on earth would we care about video games? Uh, And, you know, uh, uh, interestingly enough, we get there via our old friend Stuart Hall.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, it's a, it's kind of weird thing where it's like Marx is already at the arcade. you know, that I, I guess I kind of thought when we were going, when we opened the book, right. And we started reading, I was like, or I guess the way I just said that
1: sounds like we sit together and read the book, but we, don't, uh, just <laughs> we have a little, a little like library with like two large, uh, uh, leather chairs, like positioned across from one another.
0: Uh, 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 re- Michael, it's reading time. Oh yes. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> Turn the lamp on. Stoke the fire. <laughs> What's the uh from the Peter Straw or no, the Stephen King Peter Straubish stories where they go sit in that club where yes. like, the breathing method happens? That's uh-huh. where we are. Yeah. I forget what that place is called. What's it with that guy? Not Jeeves, but the uh, immortal but Stevens, the immortal butler. Uh-huh. <laughs> Check out just King things. Our show about the works of Stephen King in publication order, but uh, yeah, yeah, this you know this is not. I I kind of thought the book that we were going to get would be, here's Mark entering the arcade. Mark's entering, not Mark, but Marx entering <laughs> the arcade, right? Like here are the ideas, the big ideas out of Marxism, right? You know, the commodity, valorized mm-hmm. labor, right? Like these these kind of concepts, and then how they. Appear in games or how you can use games to understand them, and that really isn't this book. Uh, y- mm-hmm. You kind of need a pre-existing. I think Woodcock does an, an okay job of introducing Marx. Uh, I just got done spending uh, eight weeks or something, seven weeks teaching um, social reproduction theory and Marx, so I'm like deep in it right now, you know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, so I got to this book and I was like, oh, this is not, this is not where it's at. Uh, in terms of those ideas so so weirdly enough it's kind of a book where you kind of need to already have The method in your head before you read the book and then the method just proves to you that games matter Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I believe that if you're listening to this program you probably already believe that games matter uh, And they're they're ultimately I mean we're going to talk about the book and We're going to walk through it But I, I will say there might not be very much for you if you were already convinced that games are important and you're kind of plugged into the general conversation about games that that happens in 2022. Mm-hmm. Other big stuff at the top at the at the top here. Other things you want to point out before we just kind of work our way through the book?
1: Gosh, no, I don't think so. Well, I'll mention because um, we do this for for other folks. Uh, just a little bit of bio on Woodcock. Uh, he has a PhD from Goldsmiths, London. He is currently a senior lecturer at the University of Essex. Uh, and other books that he has written in addition to this one are Working the Phones through Pluto, uh, The Gig Economy through Polity. Um, these are both kind of more popular press books. So uh, Marks at the Arcade is, is uh, part of a sequence there for him. He, he uh, has written a couple of these, uh, and that apparently just last year had a book come out called The Fight Against Platform Capitalism from University of Westminster Press. Uh, hmm. So... Yeah, these are that seems to be uh, kind of in his wheelhouse, uh, you know, platform capitalism, like working the phones appears to be. Let me double check this uh, about working in call centers. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, very much uh, looking at kind of like uh, labor issues in the context of like contemporary informatics work, like information economy kind of uh, uh jobs, grunt jobs, I guess, in the, in the case of call centers. Yeah. I mean, I get it.
0: And also, it looks like edited
1: a couple books here. Oh, really? Didn't catch those. Aug-
0: augmented Exploitation, Artificial oh, yeah. Intelligence, Automation and Work, and Guerrilla Democracy, Mobile Power and Revolution in the 21st Century. Hmm? uh It was just, just on the website here that I clicked. Uh, the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, look, I, I never... Whatever I'm about to say about this book, whatever I've said so far about in terms of like what you're going to get when you kind of go in the door, I think this is like the Lord's work, right? Like Mm -hmm. writing the book that's like, here is the thing. You don't need to know anything before you pick this book up. And when you leave this book, you will know a thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and not an abstract uh, system, which which I am notorious for, uh, say, writing a whole book about. (laughs) Um, But a, you know, a pragmatic and practical, here's what's happening. Uh, you know, but in terms of the show, uh, there, there's going to be a lot of us just telling you what is in each individual chapter and kind of operating our perspective. Because, look, I mean, you know, here's the thing: the the Marxism's got to bleed out here somewhere in terms of like where you can see it. Uh, the the book is all ideology, you know. The in in terms of the book has got to move us toward a. Salient position where Marxism speaks to these issues, and I I do think that Woodcock bends some of these things to make the Marxism work in a linear way. um, That that maybe sometimes misrepresents is not the right word, but bends them. You know, um, transforms them slightly to make the argument very clear in a way that the argument for me is not so very clear although you can still get there via marxism so um i you know i think this is a good book for thinking about what are the um uh costs and benefits not not to get all uh, economist about it right but there are costs and benefits to this type of book approaching these angles of of the game industry and um i think it's a good book to think with you know i think i think it's a, a smart way of engaging these ideas Hey, did you know uh, Karl Marx shows up in Assassin's Creed Syndicate?
1: I well, actually, I did know that because everyone like was laughing about it whenever that game came out, right? Uh,
0: because uh, I mean it is funny, it, it, and notably, I mean I've made the same uh, argument, although much smarter or not smarter, smaller. <laughs> Jesus, although much smaller in my book is uh that it, it's very funny to do the Marxism missions and Marx is like don't do anything bad mm-hmm. don't 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 ruffle any feathers you can steal stuff but don't beat anybody up don't don't do anything bad you gotta prevent the anarchists from doing the bad stuff they're the baddies mm-hmm. uh it's it's uh very funny to me but yeah so you know Woodcock kind of presents this idea um uh that um Marx being an AC syndicate somehow somehow gives us a uh way in to thinking about games and games culture um and the kind of representational work that goes on there um and uh and assassin's creed in general right they this is it's a great speech that he quotes from starick who is the main villain of that game uh where, where he's talking about tea and how tea gets all the way from india to you know the the hands of an industrialist in england he kind of walks through like the global system of of capitalism as it exists at the time, and you know the the kind of maneuver here is that Woodcock is reading the missions and he's reading the pieces of Assassin's Creed Syndicate and is saying, "Well, like you know, what if?" the game itself does provide a little schematic of capitalism for us. And if it does provide a little schematic of capitalism for us, then games are intersecting with, with capitalism in all kinds of ways. And if that's the case, then Marx, who only, I mean, not literally only, but is most famous for writing about the intricate workings of capitalism, might tell us something about games and all their different cultural and, uh, 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 you know, worker labor facets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a neat little way of tying it all together, and it starts out with this little... Piece by Stuart Hall, you know, being basically saying, like, why this is okay? (laughs) Pop pop culture is cool. Yeah. Um, And but yeah, it's I I think it's a a, a clever introduction. I don't know if it's structurally necessary.
1: So, yeah, I was uh, curious, just like as someone who didn't play this Assassin's Creed game and you as someone who is deep in the Assassin's Creed research minds. Uh, I didn't know if there was anything additional you you had to say about that. All, all I knew about this was the the jokes that were being posted to Twitter when when that game dropped. Exactly what you said. Where uh, Marx is well known enough, right, historically famous enough to show up as a character in this game, uh, and sort of positioned such in the popular imagination that he is a good guy. But also, he must be represented kind of totally, uh, in 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 a sanitized form compared to his actual historical form, right? In order to be a good guy, Marx has to be like, don't don't make anyone upset, sneak in and sneak out. Uh, yeah, he's turned into like uh, like the ultimate centrist mm-hmm. uh,
0: in in Assassin's Creed, which is very funny. But Woodcock is basically making the argument to. To represent Marx within the game, you know, within uh, game space, right? Uh, And I I mean that in the Warkian sense of the interrelation between the physical world and the video game world, right? The way these representations uh, and game ideas spill out, right? In order to gamify Karl Marx, you have to rob Karl Marx of most of of the things that he actually did in the world or his beliefs. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to turn him into like the good guy against the bad guys who are just bombing people left and right, which is w- what's happening in, in that section of the thing. And of course the, the fries, the fry twins choose not to join the workers party, uh, mm-hmm. which is, which is very funny to me. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, the the game also, I think, I think Alexander Graham bells in it. Oh, you got to help him set. Yeah. He's like, he's like your buddy. Uh huh. Pretty sure it's Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, there's, there's a few. It's been it's been a minute since I, I've, I since I've played that game. I got extensive notes, but I have not finished my chapter on it. So it's uh for for uh, anyone who writes a book, you will know that when you're not working on that exact thing, you offload this all into like cold storage memory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but uh but yeah anyway so i i think that's right i think the general thing here but really it's just like a clever way of getting us into the book right i mm-hmm. i don't think it's got content 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 yeah um about that because then we go into a history of video games and play which
1: is chapter 2 yeah or well technically chapter 1 cuz we just did oh that's right the introduction uh but we've moved into the first part of the book which is making video games and the history of video games and play is as i said kind of at the beginning uh A resumption of a kind of history uh, that we've seen bits and pieces of before, uh, starting out with kind of, you know, what is a video game as an object? Uh, There's a gesture at making interactivity kind of the defining characteristic of it as a new medium, which if you were in an academic book, uh, is the sort of thing that would require just a whole lot of drilling down into the the history of this particular question of, like, the very term interactivity. What does that mean? Uh, and it's also something that, because I'm me, I would be inclined to, like, quibble with. I'm like, hmm, but what does interactive mean? What's going on here? But that's not really what this book is about. Uh This is just kind of like a, a pocket history. So we can say... Uh, in a fairly general sense, that video games are things that solicit kind of our input in ways that are newer novel compared to the media that have come before. Uh, there's also a, a kind of assertion that play is non productive, and this appears to be in conflict with the ethos of neoliberalism. Uh, where you have to be this kind of uh, rational actor who is co- uh, constantly maximizing your outputs uh moving on through this idea of immersion through uh, both wazinga and Salen and Zimmerman uh but then actually critiques and this is this is a part that I really like it happens on uh page 15 um, critiquing the idea of the magic circle sort of pointing out woodcock does uh that this uh feel like the the way salen and zimmerman take up wazinga's magic circle where they say there does seem to be something magical happening when you play a game woodcock comes out and says like no there isn't (laughs) it's not magic uh like the video game is not in fact like distinct from the real world like the feeling that you have is the feeling that you have whatever but it's not magic these things uh are objects that are produced by relations uh moving then into this question of, like, what is play versus what is labor, Uh, taking it as this kind of necessary separation that is nevertheless, uh, you know, being uh, made more fungible uh, as time goes on. Uh, From here, moving into, like, the beginnings of uh, video games as they were developed in kind of the uh, military, uh, like the stuff that um oh god what is gameplay mode krogan's book mm-hmm. uh, uh how how the technology of video games comes out of military research programs in particular uh people who are working on these programs or students who are working at mit or something who work on these programs in an official capacity but then kind of you know for shits and giggles on the side uh program in games to play or find weird uses for these technologies and then this culminates in the development of uh, independent like game systems, console systems, these migrate into the home Uh, We get the history of, you know, very brief history of Atari, the US video games crash, but that industry continues on in Japan Uh, The kind of rebirth of the video games industry in Japan in the 80s and 90s uh, as also uh, This is another neat part uh, of Woodcock's kind of history here that the uh, Japanese video game industry is itself also a result of like the reconstruction of the Japanese economy post-World War II uh, mm-hmm. like the the sort of confluence there of the US uh, military-industrial complex and kind of the reconstruction of Japan Uh, The 90s boom, the kind of what I think of as like my contemporary history, right? Like my gaming prime with the emergence of the Xbox uh, and then kind of the console wars of that generation, Xbox, PlayStation. Interestingly enough, the Wii kind of falls like Nintendo kind of falls out of the history in in this chunk, um, which I only point out because I think that's what was notable to me about that is the the Wii is the first console that like ever showed up in my grandparents house right there was the novelty of the Wii was something that got like my grandfather to play a video game
0: it was the people's game yes. the people's platform they could bowl <laughs> yes exactly they could destroy their TVs like anyone else yeah <laughs>
1: Uh and then you know we kind of run through uh the rise of uh like contemporary online gaming from that and we we end the chapter with uh Fortnite which is which is of course like the Apex game of the moment circa 2019 when this book comes out. Still still Apex game of the moment. Yep. <laughs> Going above Apex. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh,
0: uh that in Roblox, I guess. The uh yeah, you know this chapter it's exactly what you were saying at the beginning of the episode, right? Uh, there, Literally, we have read whole books about different pieces of this 15-page chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Carly Kasurik's book and uh, the Krogan. And also, we didn't mention this before, but Games of Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Games of Empire shows up across this whole book. And Woodcock says in in the uh, acknowledgements, right? Like, look, this book shows up a billion times and it actually might be in this chapter as well. We might get it also p- parenthetical, just because um, DePuter and uh, uh, Dyer Witherford, um, uh, just because that work is so kind of monumental in mm-hmm. the understanding of games and Marxism, you know, it, it really stands out and sticks. But it also feels like, you know, it. To me, if you want to really learn about these things, you should you should go and read those other books. This is a great intro. Uh but it also points out something that that's a little difficult about popular press books. I think it's a an interesting way to think about this, an interesting place to put it. Um and there's nowhere else in this entire show that we could talk about this. So I actually find it pretty pretty helpful. Uh there are lots of both pseudo-academic and kind of more popularly oriented histories of video games like there are a lot of books that are that a few years ago i was teaching a history of games course like every semester and so i actually kind of cast around for what is the best history at the time you know this is three or four years ago, not, not what is the best book in terms of like, oh, I can take this chapter from here and I can take this chapter from here and I can take this chapter from here and like assemble my own, you know, <laughs> a history book of, of, of game studies. No, what is the best book I can have a student buy? And then read through to understand it and I can teach it, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and give some context and play some games along the way so they can do it. But what would be a good core textbook for a course? And ultimately, I think there is not one. Replay is probably the best still, um, as far as I can tell. All the others are so um, either aimed so broadly uh, that they are uh, impossible to teach. You know, like they're like Nintendo existed uh, the NES comes out. Here's 15 pictures of different NES games. You know, they're they're that kind of um, fandom oriented history. You mm-hmm. know, that, don't you remember when those kinds of histories, which are fine, but are not useful for, in a classroom setting necessarily. Um, or they are hyper-academic, right? Like, in, in here's a, a history of what happened in summer of 1989, you know? They, <laughs> they are so specific. Or they, you know, have to bracket so much off, because that's how academic work works, right? Like, I'm going to talk about Nintendo in 87, you know, as opposed to uh, what's happening in the games industry broadly then. Um... You know, uh, so Carly Kasurik's book that, we, that we've done here, right, Coin Operating Americans, excellent book. I enjoy reading the book. I've taught big pieces of that book, but you can't really use it as a, a textbook, right? Because it is really locked in a particular time and place, even though uh, Kasurik does a really good job of giving you the forward and the backward um, in terms of context. So I say all of that to say that, like, w- what's fascinating to me about reading this is it's a it's a great history, but it also is a place where so many pieces are have to be sanded off in order to make it work. And I, I don't know, did you look at the notes for this? Uh, I did not, no. So basically what this chapter is, if, if you look at the notes, is that a big chunk of it is basically um, the the short theory of play stuff that we were talking about, you know, Huizinga, Salem and mm-hmm. Zimmerman, that kind of stuff. Um, a really heavy citation of games of empire. And then it's kind of a narrative rewriting of the video game history timeline from the strong museum of play. Um, uh, hmm. and you can look at the citations to see that, you know, that I would say that is the most cited thing in the, uh, you know, 86 citations or 86 notes for this chapter, which is not a criticism, right? But it really kind of gives you, I think a context for like the kind of replication work that's necessary to do in one of these popular press books mm-hmm. where, you could just go read the timeline. And in fact, when I taught this course before, I actually ended up using the Strong Museum of Play timeline, which is why I recognize this, <laughs> <laughs> essentially. Like, I, I ended up using that as, like, the the core, you know, quote-unquote orienting text here, and then kind of popping a bunch of essays in at key, key places in that timeline. But the timeline itself and the write-ups that are in the timeline were what I used to kind of orient students in game history. Um, and so what's interesting to me is it's like... Uh, This is a useful kind of uh, narrative about the games industry, although it is a narrative. You know, Woodcock is telling a story about the emergence of a particular form of capitalism uh, in the games industry. Um, But it's also kind of just a rewriting of a public resource. Um, You know, it's uh, weirdly enough a uh, privative capture (laughs) of of what is from the museum a public good um, that's going on here. Although I do not believe, or at least last time I looked at it, Fortnite was not on the Strong Museum uh thing so i guess that does give you a benefit but it is interesting to me how that works right that that the popular press uh thing by virtue of its form has to end up kind of looking like a public timeline in Mm -hmm. order to fit all of this in because it's so complicated right like i don't i don't envy this at all i'm actually working on a piece right now that is about uh the history of games it's kind of for uh for a um uh, like a, one of those handbook kind of things that academic presses put out, mm-hmm. and it, the the effort you have to put in to not write a, just a linear timeline is immense. It's it's <laughs> terrible. Like, so I totally get why you would do it. Um, unfortunately, in these handbooks, there are just so many of those at this point that I can't I can't get away with doing that. Otherwise, right. I absolutely would. But but so to me, the thing is like, did you find this chapter interesting? Do you think these ideas are cool? Well, maybe you probably want to dive into a book that's specifically about. Uh, one of these things or if you want to get uh, you know a more comprehensive and bigger kind of thing just go check out the public resources at the strong those are really helpful too
1: mm-hmm. chapter two the video games industry there sure is one do you know that uh, Boris Johnson talked all about it yeah I mean that's a th- the Boris Johnson thing here is actually really uh, interesting and I think useful and illustrative right because yeah. um, basic claim here Uh, video games are kind of like the modern commodity par excellence, right? The, the, the production, the circulation, and the consumption of them, uh, it's all tied up in these hyper capitalist contemporary uh, networks of logistics and supply chains. You know the extraction of the minerals to uh, make the circuits in your your computers and your game systems, so on and so forth. Uh, where are these things made? Uh, where are they shipped to? Who consumes them? And then, like the actual development of the games themselves is also happening. Uh, in you know, it's it's, it's a truly globalized industry in that way. Uh, and then he runs through kind of the industry numbers, right? like uh, uh, profits and returns and things like that, but also notes, and this is a thing that recurs throughout this book, notes that these uh, numbers are a little bit hedgy because the industry is so loath to like uh, report in a way that is transparent. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of things are sort of like estimated or like based on, um, you know, documents that have been framed in a certain way and so on and so forth. But uh, Boris Johnson comes into this tale uh, because Woodcock points at an early 90s like op ed that Johnson wrote during the uh, moral panic regarding video games, kind of probably about the time of like the Mortal Kombat uh, blood controversy. Uh, and talking about you know oh these video games they're making children uh, uh, stupider essentially right like children are not gaining intelligence they're they're uh, uh, being set back by playing video games so on and so forth. I I actually want to read the quote. The <laughs> quote is very funny. Yeah. Uh,
0: because because it is this particular like Boris Johnsonism right this kind of like. Um, uh, what's their like the public school like right. rhetoric maneuver right? Yes. You know mm-hmm. uh, the the they become like blinking lizards, motionless, absorbed. Only the twitching of their hands showing they are still conscious. These machines teach them nothing. They stimulate no ratiocination, discovery, or feat of memory. Though some of them may cunningly pretend to be educational. It, it is the the ultimate bojo goofery.
1: Mm-hmm. you know flash forward oh 20 years and uh, Woodcock can quote Boris Johnson being effusively happy about the video game industry and its rise and how uh, you know this is a real opportunity for for economic growth and innovation here in London uh, because of uh, all these new computery informatic jobs right uh, mm-hmm. uh, just a total flip, uh, on the topic once the issue becomes something about, like, employment jobs, the economy, uh, and this illustrates for, for Woodcock, uh, precisely how integral to capitalism, uh, video games are and have become that, uh, Th- they can go from this thing of moral panic to no, 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 we need to we need to cultivate the video game industry. We need to help video games uh, uh, get made. We need to make sure people are working on them and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and I think that this chapter does a really I think probably because of that really useful framework of tracing Boris Johnson's like weirdness here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it provides a really good orienting center for this whole chapter. I Whereas the previous chapter, I'm like, ah, so-so on so, like, you know, what what you can pull from it. This one, I think, does a really good job of bringing a lot of different discussions about games and how the industry works from a lot of different kind of areas and bringing them all together. Um, I actually, the other day, uh, was talking with a student and the student was asking me about like, well, why is everything becoming, you know, free to play and all that kind of stuff. Right. And mm-hmm. I, and I, if only, you know, at the time I, I, I had not read this book. It was like a couple weeks ago. I had not read this book yet, but I could have just pointed at this chapter and be like, all right, well, like. You know, Jamie Woodcock does a really good job of telling you how games um, monetized, you know, beforehand with selling kind of complete products as commodities. And now they they sell themselves as a, I think the quotation here, uh, is a hybrid commodity. Mm -hmm. Um, That they have all these kind of different forms to them. And then ultimately they sell themselves as a service. You know, this is the the live service game where you are on the hook for eternity if you want to keep playing it constantly buying augmented kind of pieces to them um you know dlc are more profitable than anything else uh battle passes become uh more profitable things like that um every part of the games industry gets subsumed within that model you know so there's this discussion of modding and what happened there with uh counter-strike um and then i what i really like too is that woodcock is like counter-strike was a mod and then it gets absorbed by the company and you know it now becomes monetizable and now here's where that game is and it has you know all these other kind of skins and things like that that are also profitable so um yeah i think he i think he does a really good job here of kind of showing where 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 does the money come from and where does it go and how does it circulate mm-hmm. um i like that a lot here um the i i, I do think it's interesting I, although woodcock does flag it that there seems to be this kind of divide that's happening in the chapter between um, the way the military entertainment complex functions in games, you know, that's kind of uh, hyperextended, right, consultancies and licenses for particular rifles like the Barrett and things like that, versus, like, the film industry. You know, you kind of get this sense that Woodcock is setting up, like, if you thought the film industry was bad, get a load of the, <laughs> the games industry. And I'm sorry to report that the whatever you think about the games industry here, the film industry is just as bad. It does the same stuff. <laughs> like, all the same stuff. Um, and, and in some ways, too, is, is um, at least in video games, everyone is too cowardly to pr- to represent a real war. <laughs> uh, unless it's like sufficiently fantastically in the past, like World War II, mm-hmm. um, uh, or like guerrilla operations that are neither real nor fake in in terms of like uh, you know like the 1970s stuff that we see in Call of Duty, yeah. Uh, but uh, you know we just get like straight up revisionism that happens in Hollywood film. Um, you know there are quite a few books about the ways that wars are represented in the way that consultants, in particular um have have fueled that kind of popular revisionism in the imaginary um you know by producing world war ii for example as quote unquote the good war right Right. in in contrast to other wars when uh things like fragging um are were present in world war ii pretty substantially but have been written out of the narrative um as we've gone forward in order to make it the good war as opposed to the bad war vietnam or whatever so um you know that's that's my anytime any of this stuff comes up i gotta get on my my soapbox and be like well actually the film industry did you know these movie makers over here
1: these these wizards in hollywood <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're casting an evil spell
0: <laughs> They're they're getting in your house and they're telling you all about this stuff and it's not true That's me now. Mm -hmm. I'm the truth teller. But anyway,
1: that's just me being effusive about the chapter. I I like the chapter a lot. Yeah. Uh, The next chapter then turns to the work of video games. Uh, And we begin right up top with the fact that the prevalence of NDAs in the industry keeps workers from openly or accurately discussing their labor conditions. And this is contrasted very strongly with uh, Marx's use of the factory reports in his own research.
0: Y- yeah uh i mean i think this is right uh, like woodcock is correct in in ascertaining that ndas are a constraining thing but also at the same time video game workers will talk about anything
1: mm-hmm. uh and they talk often oh hold on i'm not sure regularly. about that give me a second i should uh hold on i'm twitter.com <laughs> 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 i'm just gonna just gonna check out and see if there's oh yep nope there's tweets okay you're right <laughs>
0: but you know but Woodcock makes a great point here too right that that uh although he gets to it in the discussion of pr kind of exclusively but that the emotional and uh personal labor of these people is just folded back into um you know their whole being is folded into uh essentially um promoing games right mm-hmm. uh and i think that's right but also you know like uh video game companies are leaky as a sieve uh and they're leaky at the highest levels and they're leaky at the lowest levels and um uh, and that's not a criticism or, or or whatever right and maybe it could be just the mainline good employee doesn't talk about those things but i've been around this circuit for long enough to to see how this happens and and i think that um I think the top-level claim is correct. I, I I don't want to argue with what Woodcock is saying that NDAs are designed to constrain and violate the basic communication principles of a worker. I think that is correct. I, I don't mm-hmm. want to be critical of that. But I also want to hold out for the idea that if we want to think about these theories um, from below as well as from above, you know, in a few places in this book, Woodcock distinguishes like. Um, particularly socialism from above, which is like the handed down, you know, the five-year plan mm-hmm. of the mechanisms of socialism, as opposed to people being educated about socialist principles and then coming to their own conclusion about how that should work and function from the emergence of of workers' consciousness, right? Those are the kind of two different models of thinking about it. The reality of all of this is it's somewhere in between, right? There, there's no such thing as one or the other. Uh, Well, maybe there is, there's such thing as from above, but what from below constitutes is like 99% um, and it can get complicated very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, but what I do want to say is that the, the complication here, the thing that we have to hold in mind is actually video game workers are talking all the time. They are constantly reporting on their labor conditions in ways that may not be directly reported. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And if we want to talk about what are the actual ways that labor is being done in the industry and what are the communications technologies that are uh, predatory on that or allow them to speak or uh, make them victims or liberate them. Right. Because communication technologies do all those things. Um, How does it function? I, You know, I think that there's this easy narrative that happens here where it's like, well, Marx went and looked at factory reports. You know, he went to the British library and got all the factory reports and he was able to understand exactly what happened because he could ascertain the conditions of work and the secrecy of the industry as such Uh, of the games industry that we cannot do that well i I, you know i'm sorry but i've i've spent the last year working on a book on assassin's creed and there's a lot of investor reports that have a lot of information in them like a lot of information about in them uh that sometimes speaks to that and there are also lots of employees and they all want to talk right maybe not all uh under their own name and some anonymously but people are much more willing to speak than than um maybe we might think so my my Um, hedge here is that the specter of the NDA might actually in like, Oh, you know, this fantasy that workers don't speak that might actually preclude talking to workers. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it might set some political goals that assume or assert that the NDA is all powerful. When I, you know, if you're in the industry, you know, it's, it's as flimsy as a paper bag, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like it just, it doesn't do the work that people think because it's so easily navigable around, except for people in very specific locations where, um, uh, you, you know, their speech would always be flagged as their speech. Right. You know, I, I don't think that, um, you, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's some people who, if they spoke, you would, they would never be anonymizable because of their position. But mm-hmm. anyway, that's my thing about NDAs. I, I think I, if we take a serious position on this topic that from below matters, we actually have to kind of consider the from below and like, let's not mythologize the NDA. Um, it's a, they're pretty flimsy.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and this, uh, uh, folds into something else that happens in this chapter. Uh, so Woodcock, you know, does some kind of demographic work that we've seen before. What types of people tend to work in the games industry? Surprise, surprise. It's people who very often play games, get their start like modding or like, you know, futzing around with, uh, games kind of in their spare time. They develop some skills, then they get pulled into the industry proper, uh, and then demographically, uh, we find that, uh, this tends to favor, like, white, male, technologically minded, and kind of libertarian in, uh, political orientation folks. Uh, that's not to say that's the entirety of the video games industry, of course, because we get later into, uh, you know, uh, uh, like, the disparities in gender, for instance. Uh, but... Uh, one thing that is important for Woodcock, uh, and this comes out of also like the ways that video games are developed. Uh, in their first instance, is this kind of uh, you know, the the messing around on military hardware uh, while you're off the clock. Let's see if we can get this machine to play an asteroids game or something. Uh, this kind of countercultural or uh let's say, scampish bent, right? Uh, where in, when we talked about that in the Krogan book, Krogan ends up kind of telling a story where uh, the countercultural leanings of the people who are working on these machines, even, even if they are trying to kind of like deviate from authority, uh, ultimately, like the structures of authority, like capture that energy and funnel it back into uh, uh, an industry that grows to their own benefit. Uh, here... Woodcock wants to emphasize that the kind of scampish or mischievous or countercultural tendency within games culture is something that we shouldn't write off, that it could be, uh, uh, like, used to our benefit. And I think along the lines of what you're saying, like... N- these people want to talk like these are, these are people who are going to sign an NDA. Sure. But like also know that it's like an imposition on them. uh, Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in their favor. Uh, And then Woodcock kind of walks through uh, from there, uh, you know, this kind of history of like, crunch, uh, and development cycles with, you know, mass firings or layings off at the end and then rehirings, uh, and just kind of what does this workforce look like? And noting that, uh, touching on what I said about gender, uh, for instance, uh, if you're a woman working in this industry, uh, and if you decide that you're going to have children, uh, then you're basically written out because once you like because uh the, the way that society tends to be structured childcare still falls to women so uh once you have to take care of a child you're not working crunch hours that's not a thing you can do and so the the companies have these kind of policies of labor um that specifically exclude or not even specifically right but like consequently exclude certain types of people and focus the labor base down on only certain other types of people yeah yeah, I you know, it has a kind of self-selection mechanism,
0: mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I think this chapter in a general sense, again, if you don't know anything about this, right, that it's a great introduction, um, and probably if I were teaching a course, I would just use this chapter and be like, here's the deal, because a lot of this, too, is uh, summary and, um, uh, like, combination of all the reportage that's been going on from the past 10 years or so right you know it's a really useful weaving together of all these these different threads uh, that are all part of the same thing and if you're like attached to these things you can do that kind of in your head but for some random human being on the street this is a great introduction to those issues
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, the next chapter is then organizing in the video games industry yep uh, and this is basically a history of how uh, GWU Games Workers Unite uh, comes about.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, and it kind of runs through the story um, uh, of that. Right, the twenty. It, there's all these issues in the previous chapter that we saw with um, uh, labor in the games industry. In 2018, GDC uh, and the IGDA um, basically were like running a, um, a workshop that was like, "Hey." don't even think about unions (laughs) you know or that you think they're good for you they're not good for you they're bad for you Mm -hmm. uh and uh weirdly enough that like um you know sparks a flame in a lot of people and they show up to the meeting and you know there are quite a few write-ups of reporters and bloggers and critics who were there at the time and uh anyway that's kind of the explosive event that game workers unite comes out of which has chapters everywhere Uh, kind of all over the world at this point. Um, Although I'm, I'm mostly only familiar with the uh, Anglophone world and uh, yeah, you know, kind of uh, has gone through some waxing and waning and has an international organization that, that really um, I think purposefully and usefully atrophied and turned into mostly local groups. Some of which have been very successful and some of which have kind of fallen by the wayside. As far as I know, for example, in the South, there's no game workers unite, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know sector um i i've not heard of any meetups that are happening in say the atlanta area although maybe there are maybe i'm just ignorant uh of it but uh but you know i think the west coast has had uh, quite a bit of success there um and particularly in europe and also in the uk um game worker unite ireland just had like a big victory i think mm-hmm. um where they were, uh, I don't, I, it's like happened in the past couple of days, so I don't have the exact details on it in the head, but I believe that they got either an alignment with existing union uh, management systems, or they are about to, or something like that. They're getting recognition as a, as a union, Mm. which is good.
1: Yep. And that's, that's really that chapter, right? It kind of ends on a, uh, I mean, this is written in 2019, so it ends on kind of a, you know, well, I don't mean this in in, in the put-down Marvel sense, but a real, like, well, that just happened kind of way, right? Mm GWU is here. It's on the scene. Uh, Let's hope it continues to have good effects for people. That's kind of where the chapter Mm -hmm. ends. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then that moves us into part two of the book, playing video games, and then chapter four, uh, analyzing culture. And this is uh, resuming... Kind of the earlier question of like, well, wh- why even think about video games in this way to begin with? Uh, if we're if you know a priori, if we're Marxists, like what is what is to be done uh, for me as a Marxist in studying video games? And so we you know reiterate that these are objects that are produced out of these uh, uh, sort of global economic mechanisms. Um, They emerge from the present conditions of society and they are shaped by them, but they are also like how we interact with them. And so uh, we run through Raymond Williams who we've talked about uh, in our Stuart Hall episode, uh, and kind of his pioneering work on uh, taking television seriously as a as a medium, as a thing that uh, changes kind of the, the structure of life. Um, and then also n- not as explicitly, but like kind of working through Hall himself and like the discussion that Hall had again in that episode or in that book about um, the Marxist idea of base and superstructure and how like, One is not sort of primary over the other that they are constantly like growing out of and reinforcing and like having effects on one another. And so it's important to, you know, just try to like make the intervention because uh, it is only through the intervention that you're going to produce anything that might feed back into the other domain. Yeah, I I don't think I have anything else to say about this (laughs) chapter. Yeah. uh, Like, I'm convinced. uh, There's a really, it starts, I'll I'll mention this, it starts with this really funny anecdote about Woodcock going to, like, a Star Wars VR experience (laughs) and having, like, a bored teenager uh, at the front desk, like, having to, like, recite the script but being clearly uninterested in it and, like, instead of saying, like, you know, welcome to like our, you know, VR experience, whatever, put this on and go into that door. It's like, are you ready for your mission? (laughs) Are you are
0: you Mm -hmm. are you ready? You want to do it? Yep. you want to do the mission? The, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the whole book kind of turns here. I mean, as you said at the beginning of uh, just a second ago, but the whole book turns, and now it's like a genre study, mm-hmm. and it's like, how do game genres interface with, like, aspects in and capitalism, and, and I, I do think the book kind of, like, doesn't go off the rails necessarily, but it starts uh, gyring wider and wider, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because, like, this next chapter, First Person Shooters, is kind of an analysis of the FPS, but... It kind of is an analysis of how they interface, how like Marxism can help you understand first-person shooters, and it's kind of just a history of first-person shooters, and it's kind of a media analysis of what first-person shooters do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a little unclear about now at, at this point what they what they're up to. And I I don't really know, like, what the upshot is, right? Like, there's not enough information here for you to confidently say you know something about first-person shooters, but there's – historically, but there's, like, too much for it not to be mostly history. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I actually – I thought the first half of this book really great, really strong, uh, really helpful for introducing people to, like, the pragmatic realities of the video game industry, even if there's, like, little pieces I quibbled with. But here I just was like, I don't – I don't know about, like, the structure of this and, like, what we get out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But, yeah, I don't know. So, I I see a little... You got a little franny face in your notes.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, because flow is talked about here, and it's assumed, like, pretty uncritically. Like, it's like uh, FPSs are really good at uh, making people experience flow. And you can go listen to our flow episode for uh, a very long discussion about how we... Think about that, and not to speak for Cameron, but how I specifically feel like flow maybe doesn't exist. Um, so, <laughs> well, the
0: thought, the thing that I thought, which you've also got in your notes here, right, is that uh, there is a linearization of what Walter Benjamin is talking about, you know, the kind of uh-huh. uh, Marxist critic, um, theorist, art philosopher guy, you know, Benjamin wrote a lot, did a lot. What Benjamin is talking about when one gets kind of involved in um, interacting with a piece of media, you know, uh, I think Woodcock is quoting um, Benjamin talking about uh, camera actors. What happens mm-hmm. when you are captured by the camera? This is kind of a famous piece uh, by Walter Benjamin. And, uh, but but then like it elides that and moves that very uh, neatly into video games prompt the player in the same way, and then that produces flow, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the the camera apparatus does something to an actor in the same way that the video game apparatus does something to uh, a player and produces flow. And yeah, I, I similarly have a position of, um, the way that that gets deployed is, I think, a little uncritical for for me, uh, both in this book and in a general sense, culturally around that. And I do not think that these are the same thing. I don't think mm-hmm. what Walter Benjamin is talking about is the same thing that uh, what what happens with video games. I think, you know, I would, I would put those all under a big umbrella that's called discipline, and I would have to talk about them uh, distinctly. Again, <laughs> that's not really what the book is after, right? So I get why that's not happening here. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, Yeah, I also was not like a big fan of that. Uh, But really, after that, we we move into a history of the first person shooter. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah, sort of the history of the first person shooter and kind of uh, what most of these like final chapters do is just kind of take a genre and sort of poke at a little bit and disclose how that genre has ideological content and right the first person shooter apparently or, or uh, especially
0: not apparently but especially the military shooter um uh, right has all this kind of um uh, uh military ideology built into it right mm-hmm. normalizing military interventions uh, making good wars and bad wars uh the consultancy stuff that we talked before shows up again here um and then it all kind of like uh, notably by the way the uh uh, the Steven Spielberg stuff about, uh, you know, crying at level seven or whatever that gets quoted pretty often mm-hmm. that also shows back up around Medal of Honor, which, you know, uh, was partially conceived of by Spielberg. And that that's very funny to me. Mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg spending 20 years thinking about crying in a video game. Uh, but, uh, but instead, he's going to cry in his own autobiography. Uh Oh my, this is a great thing to put in the episode. It's so contemporary. Did you see the Vulture interview with the actors who are in The Fablemans who said that their job was to make Steven Spielberg cry every day? No, I did not see that. <laughs> and I just, I every time I saw that, I saw it shared around a few days ago, and every time I just thought, they're better than a video game. <laughs> <laughs> Steven Spielberg refused to cry at level six, <laughs> but he would always cry at The Fableman Actors. Oh, uh, but anyway, the chapter ends up in Spec Ops: Line, uh, which is kind of a you know we've talked about on the show um, in the Soraya Murray episode and in, on video games. And Woodcock says, yeah, it does a pretty good job of kind of self-critically reflecting on the video game military shooter thing, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where we end. Yep. Uh, it is disappointing to me that this is about first-person shooters. This chapter, but really, is just about military shooters. Yeah. Uh, uh, when the first person mechanism and the first person interactive capability is everywhere, um, and uh, even first person shooter mechanics, you know, I, I when did Slime Rancher come out? <laughs> it's <good. laughs> got to be before this, right? Yeah, oh, God. uh, no, it's 2017. Oh. The original, so oh, oh no, early access in 2016. So Jamie Woodcock might not have known about Slime Rancher, but you know, <laughs> I don't know. It, to me, it's like, uh, again cost and benefits right you want to write this kind of chapter you want to write it in a way that's accessible you want to write it in a way that touches the largest number of people because they might not have a deep knowledge of video games but then you have to sand a lot of edges off in order to make that happen it's you know i Mm -hmm. I get it i empathize with it but uh maybe this could have been called military shooters Mm -hmm. um,
1: rather than first person shooters Mm -hmm. but chapter six or no is it chapter six? chapter six role-playing games simulation and strategy um oh no it's not chapter 6
0: you have two chapter 3s in your notes. Oh my god chapter 7 role playing game simulation and strategy.
1: Yep. They exist. Uh and it turns out that uh any game that is being like simulationist or role play in any way Uh, is taking a system, it's instantiating that system as, you know, a mechanism for the game, uh, and it more often than not treats that system as kind of ahistorical and neutral, and wouldn't you know it, that also can smuggle in ideological content. For instance, uh, city sims tend to ignore the role of social class, and class struggle have played in the geography and development of many actual cities historically.
0: This is the one place in the book where I, where I really think, like, you, you got to jettison out of this book if you want to talk about, like, this book is insufficient if you care about this topic, to addressing this topic. The rest of it, you can kind of make your way through, it's t- totally fine, but the the central topic of this chapter is, in fact, the central thing that almost all of these, you know, city builders, simulation games, uh, strategy games uh, like Civ every single academic piece about them is about this Mm -hmm. uh you know i mean there are obviously some outliers here but i would say 90 95 percent the bulk of them um and so you know pick any one of those and you're going to get just as deep of a dive uh and this is missing something you know some of the pieces of what i would call like infrastructural language for understanding these that are very helpful for us right so you know bogos uh simulation fever right Mm -hmm. like what can go in the thing you know there could always be more stuff in the thing so what happens when you choose what goes in and what goes out and, and you choose what to surface and what to subordinate um you know the, the and that's that's from 2005 or something about then you know so uh yeah because that's in uh, unit operations mm-hmm. so That's all to say, right? There's a long, long history of this exact topic uh, through game studies, and I I would encourage people to go and seek that out. You know, this can't be the final word on that for you if you you care about this. Although I do really like the stuff, reading Civ and reading specifically the way that things like slavery, uh, the transatlantic slave trade specifically, and the way that, um, you know, socialism appears, right? That the, it's not just their inclusion that matters, but is the way that they are included in the way that they are framed, Mm -hmm. um, that, that matters. I I do like that. I think that's where the kind of interesting stuff is happening in this chapter, but the big broad spectrum stuff, I would say, uh, just as someone who's written on this stuff before, I, I,
1: I, I think you should seek other sources on this for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, chapter eight, political video games. Uh, this is, this is an odd chapter because I feel like it uh, has hooked together a couple of things that I'm not sure of of the connective tissue, but, like, the central point is something that we haven't talked about in a while, and I was pretty surprised to see it show up here, if only because I associate it with, like, the, the 2000s era uh, of what we used to call, like, serious games or news mm-hmm, games. Yeah. Uh, so we talk about, you know, like, uh, Mala Industria, uh, phone story, uh and Papers, Please, but also kind of the history of The Landlord's Game, which starts out as a critique of uh, capitalism and landlordism, uh, and then gets co-opted into Monopoly, which encourages and celebrates the very same behavior. Uh, But... Also, like, the thing that starts this chapter is the rise of, like, the language of gamification in the workplace and how Mm -hmm. games are suddenly introduced as a way to make work more fun or to make your workers more invested because they, like, have specific metrics and then they get little rewards and all all this stuff. And then the extremely, extremely funny thing that happens in one of – because Woodcock is in workplaces. I think he's, like, studying these practices – Um, so he's seeing this stuff happen. And the funniest thing on earth is that it turns out the, the reward that most workers in one of these instances like went for the one that was like most, uh, prompting for them to like work hard and get their work done was that then they could go home early. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, this is where I think this is the. Um,
0: argumentatively, I don't know if it's the strongest chapter in terms of, of like making its case. But I do think that like anecdotally what's going on here, very strong, you know, mm-hmm. Woodcock is doing such a good job of pulling from his experience in the workplace and being like, all right, here's how this stuff actually like lands in the world. And, uh, if you're in the world and you are doing these kinds of works, maybe you can recognize what's happening here. Um, uh, I really like that a lot. Um, my one, it's uh, very funny here, uh, and this is like a national difference, I think, right? So is this the place where the Economist game shows up?
1: Yes, I think so.
0: Right, so there's this thing about the Economist game about the gig uh, economy. Yes, mm-hmm uh and that like you know that was like real uh activism or like real usefulness here or whatever i mean you know uh, qualifiers that are being put on but there's a there's a claim being made in this chapter that the economist running a game that asks you to play as someone who has to manage their finances as a worker in the gig economy and then you know the game is mostly fail state that that is like usefulness of games in the world and it is so funny to me and it's also i think uh uh, national difference, right? Woodcocks in the UK for the most part, although I believe spent some time in Canada. Um, it, what's really funny to me is like, the, it's a reskinning of the game spent, which is, you know, uh, infrastructural in in video game classrooms for a very long time and lots of other classrooms as well. Um, and, you know, spent kind of notoriously is a game that's, that's, can you live on minimum wage? And, mm-hmm. and actually I was showing it to a student the other day because we were talking about it. And, it's not even minimum wage anymore. It's like fifteen five an hour or something in there. And like, you still, it's still pretty hard to do it. Um, and that game is kind of notorious for, for producing different outcomes in the classroom, uh, and in, in users. One of which is that, um, they take the message to heart that it's very difficult to live life in that way. The other message being that it's a system that is rational and you can game the system that is rational and you can win. I mean, spent is winnable. Mm-hmm. Presumably the, the, the gig economy game is winnable in some combination of variables and, uh, you know, expertise. Um, and, you know, you know, I don't know. It, it becomes uh, when, you, when you teach it, when you work with it, you end up with students coming to the conclusion of like, well, uh, economics and like the management of the household. Uh, that's just that's just playing the game right. Mm-hmm. It's all, all know, spreadsheets. Like, it's all spreadsheets. Get, get get the game system together, right? And that, that shows up. That happens in real life. I've seen it happen. Uh, and so I am a little bit more, you know, look, ideology is powerful, y'all. Uh, I, I think in a, in a book about Marxism, we have to think about the idea that perhaps capitalist ideology can overwhelm its contradictions. That might be one of the things that it's really good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, you know so uh, that's just my kind of qualm to fit in there but i think this is a pretty solid chapter around a lot of these things it goes through the history of the landlord's game which we've seen a few times here um talks about papers please um it seems like uh, you, you want to bring up uh, our old favorite game space
1: yeah well this chapter ends uh talking about the rise of like twitch streaming and in particular this kind of um, fad is not the right word but uh <sighs> A sort of burst of people who uh, start streaming, uh, hoping to make it big or, or, you know, make money doing it. And specifically also people who quit their regular jobs in order to just stream video games. Uh, And a lot of this ends up pivoting, Woodcock says, on this kind of fantasy that... uh, in streaming, like, you know, one, like, you're not actually working because you're playing video games, and that's play, that's fun. Uh, but then sort of two, uh, anyone can make it in, in streaming because, uh, you know, all you need is your camera and your game setup, and you just got to play some video games and talk to people. Uh, and what I think is notable here uh, is that this meritocratic fantasy... Uh, is not brought into conversation with Mackenzie Work's idea of game space because this is precisely her point. Like this is what game space does: is it presents the fantasy of the level playing field, uh, where everyone has kind of the same starting position, and you can just like climb the ladder based on your own uh, can-do itness. And I don't know something something to think about, I guess. Right, <laughs> capitalist ideology overpowering things. Yeah. I I think that's right. Yeah, the um I
0: I think it might be important for contemporary and, and this is kind of what happens at, I get sorry, let me let me let me back up. We got a lot going on here. Uh what what is fascinating to me is that this book is so in conversation with things like Games of Empire um uh and yet kind of ignores some of the lessons of uh autonomism, the kind of conversations that that book is in conversation with, right? Mm-hmm. That like The communication apparatus itself has been consumed by capitalism, Uh, and the language that we have in order to to address these issues has been consumed by capitalism, and the modes of resistance have been consumed by capitalism, which doesn't mean that resistance is impossible or that uh, a transformation into something after capitalism isn't possible, but it does mean that the tactics and strategies have to change. You can't just import it from the 19th century and then hope everything goes well. I mean, I think if there is a key contribution to these theories and um, this kind of cohort of Marxist post-Marxist thinking that Mackenzie work has been a part of that. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, she has been so careful to say, look, there are transformations that are happening, particularly in the uh, subsumption of communication that matter, and we have to pay attention to them. And GameSpace is one of those. And uh, yeah, I I mean, I kind of think if you to, to write a book that's not this book, you know, to write like a uh, level two of this book of like, all right, now we know the history and we know marks at the arcade, like marks in cyberspace or whatever. Right. Uh, Marx in the lawnmower, man, <laughs> uh, you know, where everything is, is subsumed. Then what do we do? I think you got to start with game space. I think this whole thing is, is involved in game space, but anyway, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just my, my thought and feeling about it. Yep.
1: Uh, the next chapter then online play. Um, This is a fairly brief chapter, but, uh, something that I think is very useful because it's a thing that I think about actually quite a bit as someone who played a lot of video games when I was younger and actually specifically, uh, have turned against the hobby in a lot of ways since online play became the dominant mode of things, uh, that online games take a lot of work to even know how to play them to begin with, right? They are games to be played online with other people, uh... But in doing that, you are actually like to to just like, you know, install the game, boot it up and then just like start playing. You are setting yourself up for maybe a bad time, especially if it's a game that's been around for a while and everyone else has already figured it out. And so you just get like run through this meat grinder of everyone knowing the strats you don't know, and you have to figure out all of the weird meta stuff that's developed since launch and so on and so forth. Uh, so for, you know, ironically, even though these games are meant to be played online and with multiplayer, uh, doing that in kind of a, a natural, quote-unquote, environment where you just boot it up and run it is not the best way. You actually have to have, like, a group of friends or something who already play who are going to, uh, like, help you out as you, as you fumble around a great bit
0: mm-hmm get meritocratic, bro yeah uh um, this is uh this is the emergence of a, a new michael mm-hmm anti-online michael
1: i mean oh wait hold on Meat space michael yes yeah, Meat space there michael. <laughs> michael there we go <laughs> uh no i am not interested in playing multiplayer with someone unless we're at a LAN party um, that's right. You need a physical cord between the two of you. Yeah, I mean, truly. If there's Wi-Fi in the mix, I want it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then we talk a little bit about, you know, like gendered elements in, uh, games and kind of their marketing. Uh, there's a kind of story told here that this is really kickstarted by Nintendo in the nineties when they look at their, uh, demographic breakdowns. And though there is something close to parity, it does look like, uh, that, like, young boys are, are slightly higher, and so Nintendo's marketing leans into that, calls the Game Boy the Game Boy, and that sort of thing. Um, and then we end with Gamergate uh, as kind of the culmination of uh, the, the cutthroat meritocratic ethos, uh, the kind of gendered ethos uh and then describing how gamergate then like runs right into federal politics via someone like Steve Bannon who uh sees this this uh burst of poisonous sentiment online and then makes active use of it uh with the claim finally that the the left has basically lost the battle for the politicization of the gamer identity yeah i refuse to engage in this discussion
0: okay <laughs> I just there is not a single thing that has been written about that event or what's going on um, or what happened and what happened to people that even remotely gets to like the way it has been schematized away from like direct things that occurred to human beings is like what happened with Gamergate is not just a shortcut to like understanding Steve Bannon. Mm -hmm. And also it really I don't know whatever i think this is wrong i think this like actively misunderstands what happened at the time and who were the major players were and how they they occurred um and i think putting steve bannon at the top of that and treating steve bannon as kind of the logical conclusion is ignoring the many 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 many, many <laughs> more people who were uh, central to that and that wield much more cultural influence and probably much more cult- influence period than Steve Bannon. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is, this is uh, I think, the classic emblematizing mistake uh, looking at a network and looking at one node and pretending it's the network. I, I really didn't care for this. I think it's inaccurate mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, for for reasons that, that I, I'm not willing to go into. But the conclusion,
1: why video games matter. Uh, as part of a complex culture, games are one place where political battles may be fought yeah
0: the the conclusion to this thing is like uh so now you're equipped to understand video games like that's that's you know you read the book now you get it Mm -hmm. i kind of thought there'd be more going on here at the end honestly yeah but that's that's kind of where we end off yeah uh and so i you know i think broadly i think this is a pretty good explainer book like i said at the beginning if if uh you've got someone in your life who is kind of aware of these conversations, but not, not fully aware of these conversations, then, uh, this is a good kind of intro to a lot of these, but I, I think basically anywhere in the book, and this is just a uh, uh, virtue of the genre it's in, right? Mm-hmm. Anywhere in the book that you push a little bit, you're, you're going to find a, uh, a vast cavern right beneath it. You know, you're going to punch right through that. And you're going to find a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. Uh, and as you said, Michael, uh, There are not only chapters in this book, but there are arguments in chapters of this book that have whole books written about them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will say, you know, it's a little bit weird sometimes to see those things not cited, right? Uh, But also that's part of, like, the the popular pressy nature of it, right? Like, I don't think you—no one is picking this book up expecting it to have, like— uh, 40 pages of end notes, right? And that would actively probably harm the book. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sensitive about that in any kind of way, but it is a thing that I think if you read this book or if you think it's interesting, please know that there is no place in this book that you can't dig very, very deeply in. I don't think this can be like the end of your citation apparatus for any of the topics in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've always got to push through and you've got to find the other scholars working in this area if you're thinking about it from an academic standpoint. If you're just reading this for fun and you're enjoying it and you're, you're trying to get a handle on these ideas, you can probably stop here. It's probably fine.
1: Yeah. And there we have it. Marks at the arcade. That's it. Enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to do a little
0: ad here at the end? You want to talk about uh, what people can do if they back us on Patreon?
1: Well, if you go to patreon.com slash range touch, uh, you can support us. Uh, We are totally like listener supported. We don't do ads uh, in any other capacity other than talking about ourselves on our own shows. And I guess occasionally whenever we do guest spots on other people's shows. Uh, but uh, if you give us uh, just a couple dollars a month, you'll actually get the notes that we take when we record Game Studies Study Buddies, uh, like the, the notes that Cameron and I make about the books that we've read. There is currently an entire archive for, I don't know if it's everything, uh, but actually maybe it is because we were taking notes uh, from the beginning. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it is. It's like all 52 episodes at this point. When you're listening to this, we'll have uh, a little PDF and you can just look at all of the things that we've written down things that we've talked about on the show but also lots of things that we didn't Uh, and if you give us just a a couple more dollars a month you can get all sorts of other cool bonus content for our other shows uh, like the bonus episodes for Just King Things uh, where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order, or bonus episodes for *Homestuck* made this world, uh, which has a lot of crossover with some of the discussions we have here about online communities or sort of online culture and new media. Um, and then at, at sort of like the basic level, though, you get uh, at least one bonus pod a month with Cameron and Danny talking about whatever. As far as I can tell, mm-hmm. like Danny just like makes you listen to him discuss like the worst card games imaginable. Uh, No, he likes to tell me about
0: Unmatched, and we're, I think, in month six of him telling me about the intricate things that are occurring in the game, Unmatched, uh, in the professional circuit of players of Unmatched, (laughs) and uh, I think I've played five games of Unmatched.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, but, uh, uh, sort of more importantly, because of the month that it is, this is coming out in, in October in, in the spooky month, uh, there was another additional kind of bonus episode with me, Cameron and Danny talking about the, the schlocky exploitation horror film, the Lair of the white worm, uh, which I am hearing from people who are listening to it is extremely enjoyable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think people like it. Yeah.
1: My friend, so my friend uh, messaged me, (laughs) my friend messaged me saying he was really enjoying it. And I was like, well, that's great. Uh, uh, You know, any particular reason why? And here is, here is his testimonial. Well, Mm -hmm, for one, it's the three of you. And I'm really just enjoying the specific banter, the story of everyone's wives and so on.
0: (laughs) Hmm. That's what people like.
1: Well, I I heard that uh
0: there was a, a a huge blow up around a particular wife guy on the internet. I don't have the details on that, but I'm really trying to work our way into that space. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's a void, you know, where, where you know, nature where na- uh, nature pours a vacuum, right? <laughs> so we got to get that in there. We're, we're all vying for it.
1: <laughs> for uh, yeah. for,
0: uh uh you know getting in there but uh you know speaking of testimonials if you leave a five star review on apple Podcasts, i might read it on the show Mm. uh let let me read a couple here that i don't believe i've read before there's a one from one kyle this podcast is perfect for gamers who likes books but don't want to (laughs) read very good it's from zombie kale drop out of grad school This is the perfect podcast for anyone who likes to think about media rigorously, but doesn't want to be trapped in an abandoned lime works where you're tied to a chair and forced to listen to an aging man whispering inaudible noises in your ear for decades, all the time not knowing whether the sounds you're hearing are madness or genius, only that it can only end with your eventual violent demise. Hmm.
1: How
0: about that? Yeah. (laughs) The word deridian. This is from QCJ and several other numbers and letters. The word Deridian sounds like it should be the demonym for a minor alien species from Star Trek. We are receiving a distress call from a Deridian freighter. It could be the cold open on a TNG episode. <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's funny stuff. I liked it. Thanks so much for doing that. If you leave a review, a five-star review, I uh, might read it on the show. It's great.
1: So, Michael, uh, what's the next book? Uh, <clears throat> that's it. <laughs> great. <laughs> No, the next book is uh, Video Games and Storytelling by, I only have his last name. What is his first name?
0: Suvik Mukherjee. Suvik Mukerji.
1: Okay, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't remember his first name. I just, I just had Mukherjee written down. Yeah, so we're going to be doing Video Games and Storytelling. And you know what? We've got this list.
0: Let's just say the, the rest of it. We've got the rest of the year planned out. Mm-hmm. First time since the Summer of Classics that we've planned more than one month ahead. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to buy these books, you can do that.
1: Uh, Yeah, so uh, we've done Marks at the Arcade. We are going to do video games and storytelling by Suvik Mukherjee. Uh, Next, after that, we will be doing uh, James Paul G's What Video Games Have to Teach Us About... I didn't write out the full title, but it's something like literacy and learning. Uh, Yep. And then after that, we will be reading... Oh, Oh my God, who even wrote this book? I only wrote down the title. Uh, I also, yeah, I didn't, uh, yeah. Oh, 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 uh, Well Met, Renaissance Fairs and the American Counterculture by Rachel Lee Rubin.
0: That's a wild card. Wild card. Yeah. Wild card. Yeah, we want to know about Ren Fairs. I bet you do too. Oh, yes. Probably. If you don't, now listen to the episode. How about that? (laughs) Boom. Got him.
1: Well, we, we'll, well, we'll predicate our social on your eventual exclusion. That's how that'll work out. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, we'll be back in one month. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. And we'll be back in one month
0: uh with uh an episode on suvik mukherjee's video games and storytelling and remember that we do not do any advertising for the show if you want other people to listen to it you should tell them about it we only spread by word of mouth so get on social media send an email let people know about it and uh you know help us get more listeners you're you literally are the one person who can help us if you're listening to this uh so so think about doing that recommend it to your classmates your friends your relatives and your enemies. Michael,
1: what's the catchphrase that takes us out? The social is predicated on its exclusions.
0: Welcome back. Nope. <laughs> That was too much future, sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sorry.